by Passion Church, the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. Well, come on, Strap your toupee down and get ready. Today, uh, I would like to talk about something that we're all interested in. I wanna talk on the subject of staying in love. Now, um, just to kind of make sure we're all interested in this, how many of you, and not necessarily now, but have ever in your life ever been in love? I'm just curious, you've ever been in love. Yes, that's, that's most of us have, have been in love. The thing about being in love is it's a lot easier to fall in love than to stay in love. Have you noticed that? In fact, falling in love essentially requires one thing. A falling in love requires a pulse. If you have a pulse, you have the potential to fall in love, right? In fact, some of you have fallen in love with people you've never even met. Um, if you're from my generation, you fell in love with either Ginger or who? Marianne, that's right. You were in love with one of them as a kid. You have your own person. Some of you get up and watch the news in the morning and it's not really because you care about the news. You're just in love with the newsreader because she's so beautiful or he's so cute and your, your husband or wife or whoever thinks you're just into current events. You just like looking at them, don't you? Um, now, if you're from the North, you're gonna think this is kind of odd, but some of you have fallen in love with relatives before, right? I know if you're from the North, you think, well, in Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, you probably do that kind of thing. But I'm not talking about that kind of relative. I, I, I'll just confess when I was a kid, I was in love with my cousin because she was like the most beautiful girl I'd ever seen. She lived in North Carolina. We lived here in Atlanta and she was several years older. And I loved going on vacation just so I could look at, at Susan. She was, just, she was just beautiful. So some of you fall in love. So falling in love is really easy. In fact, right now in the United States, this is hard to believe, there are over 1,500 organizations that matchmaking organizations. 1,500 matchmaking organizations, which means it has never ever been easier in the history of the nation to fall in love. There are so many options and there are so many ways for people to get connected. And I meet more and more people who seem to be happily married who met online or through one of those organizations. So it's, it's never been easier to find somebody and it's never been easier to fall in love, but I don't think it's ever been more difficult to stay in love. And there's something in you and there's something in me that wants to think there's someone out there if you're not already in a relationship with them that you'd be able to fall in love with and stay in love with forever. In fact, I think one of the questions that our culture is asking is this, is it even possible for a person to fall in love and stay in love with someone for a lifetime? Is it even possible for someone to fall in love and stay in love with someone for a lifetime. And as we look at our culture, and if you, as you maybe look at your extended family, you may be tempted to think it's impossible because after all, look what's happening around us and look what's happened to you. And perhaps you're between marriages or you've been through a couple of difficult marriages or you're in a difficult marriage now that you think is coming to an end or you're dating someone or you're, you're engaged with, to someone. And even now there's just struggle and you think, you know, I, even if we go forward, is it really possible? Is it worth shooting for falling in love and staying in love forever? And I'm not talking about just staying together 
all of us have met people that you just kind of wish they would split up. It would make your life easier. I mean, they're so miserable, but by golly, they're gonna stay together anyway. You know, I'm not talking about staying together. All you need to do is just have two bedrooms in the house. You can figure out how to stay together and put duct tape down in the middle of the kitchen, you know? I mean, yeah, there's a way to stay together, but no, nobody stood at the altar with the desire to just stay together and have a roommate. I mean, you, some of you got married to get rid of a roommate. So that, that's not the goal, right? The goal, when you, when you say I do, if you've just done that or you're about to do that or you did that years ago, the goal was to fall in love and not just stay together, but to stay in love forever. And is that even possible? And the interesting thing is this, if I got up here and used whatever persuasion skills I have to convince you that it is impo it's impossible, that it's a pipe dream, that it's a waste of time, that there's no way you're gonna find somebody, fall in love and stay in love forever. Even if I did everything I could to convince you that it's not even worth aiming at, not even worth shooting for, none of you would believe me. In spite of what we see in culture, in spite of what you've seen in your own family, there's something in you and there's something in me that believes that somewhere out there somewhere is a someone and I could fall in love with them and you believe that you have the potential to fall in love with someone and stay in love with them forever. If they would be the right person, if you would become the right person, whatever it might entail, you believe that's possible and nothing I do or say could convince you otherwise. And I think the reason that we continue to hold on to that dream and the reason we continue to hold on to that ideal is because God put in us, it's part of the image of God in us to find someone. It's not enough to have two or three bowling partners, right? It's not, a part, it's not enough to be a part of a bridge club. It's not, a part to, you know, not enough to just Facebook with some friends. There's something in all of us that wants that one special someone that we do life with, that we're honest with, that there's intimacy with, that goes beyond physical intimacy, that special someone that we spend the rest of our life with. It's in you to desire that, and it's in me to desire that. The challenge is, is it possible? And the good news is we all think it's possible, but it's not easy. It's easy to fall in. It's not easy to stay in. So would you repeat this with me? Say falling in love, falling in love. requires a pulse. Requires a pulse. Staying, in love Staying in love requires a plan. Requires a plan. And the, the truth is for many of us, we fell in love without a plan, right? We fell in love and we think, well, love will keep us alive. And you found out pretty quickly that love doesn't keep the relationship alive, that it requires more than that. Now, here's the great news. In this book that we refer to as the scripture or the word of God or God's word or whatever you grow up calling it, the Holy Bible, 2,000 years ago, most of this was written, some of it three and 4,000 years ago, this, this ancient, ancient text gives us incredible insight into not simply how to fall in love because we don't need an instruction manual for that, but instructions in terms of how to stay in love. And today, if you're gonna follow along, I'm gonna be in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter two specifically, if you wanna follow along. Philippians chapter two, and um, to kind of set us up for what we're gonna talk about in Philippians two, I wanna begin by talking about something Jesus said. Because these words that Jesus gave us that later on the apostle Paul elaborates on is the key to what it means to stay in love. Not simply to stay together, but to stay in love. And here's what Jesus said. One day he gathered his guys together. And um, I, I love reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus was just such an incredible teacher. And one day he gets all the guys together and he says this. He says, guys, he says, I wanna give you a brand new commandment. Today, I give you a brand new commandment. Now, here's what I would have thought, I think, if I were part of his disciples. I would have thought, well, Jesus, I don't wanna cause a problem, but we don't really need another commandment. We have 10, we're not very good at those. And then there's like 600 other commandments in the Old Testament. We don't need another commandment. And besides that, 
when you say you're gonna give us another commandment, you're kind of making, you're putting yourself equal to Moses and God, and which is of course exactly what Jesus was doing. He said, I'm gonna give you a brand new commandment. And so, you know, Matthew and John, they're taking notes, I guess. I don't know how, we, how all that worked. And here's what Jesus said. This is from John uh, chapter 13. He said, a new commandment I give you, and then most of you know what it was, love one another. And I think Matthew and John probably looked up and thought, that's not all that new. We've heard that before, love one another. But here's what's new about that commandment for you and new about that commandment for me. Jesus takes a word, love, that we usually use as a noun and he makes it a verb. We fall in noun. Jesus says, I want you to verb one another. I want you to begin thinking about love as a verb. I want you to make love a verb. In fact, let's just say that together because it's fun to say. Ready? I want you to say this to me. Ready? Say, make love a verb. And don't pause too long in between those, right? One more time. Ready? Make love a verb. That's what Jesus said to do. He said, I want you to begin to verb one another. I, want, I, don't, want you to be, I don't want you to be content with just feeling something. I don't want you to simply be content by falling into something that you can fall out of. I want you to take this word that you're so accustomed to hearing, and I want you to think of it as a verb, and I want you to proactively, intentionally, with a plan, with passion, go out and verb love one another. The secret to staying in love is to make love a verb. In fact, when you find people who are still passionately in love with each other after a lot of years, what you'll find if you scratch below the surface is those are people who understand what it means to make love a verb. They fell into something, but then they begin to do something. They had the pulse required to fall into love, but then they came up with ideas to intentionally begin to love one another. But then Jesus doesn't stop there. He takes it to a brand new level because all of us have seen people love other people. All of us have been loved by somebody to some extent. All of us have you know, felt loved and then not felt loved. And we look around for patterns and we look around for how it's done in culture. And Jesus says, now, when you begin to love one another, I want you to take it, I want you to do it with a brand new standard in mind. And here's what he says, love one another as I have loved you, you must love one another. Not love one another the way your parents loved each other, although they may be a great example. Not love one another the way you saw your grandparents love each other, although they may be a good example. Not love one another the way culture illustrates love one another. Not love one another necessarily the way that your previous relationship, there was a love one another. Jesus says, I want you to begin to think completely different about love. I want you in your marriage relationship, in your engagement relationship, in your romantic relationships, I want you to begin thinking in these terms. I am going to love my spouse the way that Jesus loved. And he takes it to a brand new level. Now, years go by and Jesus is crucified and rises from the dead and goes to be with the father. And a fellow comes along named Paul that we refer to as the apostle Paul. And Paul had enough relationship with Peter and John and Matthew and all these guys to put together what he considered a, a, an understanding of Jesus' life and Jesus' death and the meaning of his life and death. And he writes about it throughout the New Testament. And in Philippians chapter two, Paul takes this idea of how did Jesus love and how did Jesus love us and how does that make its way into our relationships? And he elaborates on that. And in Philippians chapter two, we see the most amazing picture of what it means to love. Now, here's the thing. These verses are addressed to all Christians and they relate to all relationships. 
Today, I wanna look at these verses just through the lens of the romantic love relationship, whether you're engaged, you're in love with somebody, or you're married to someone. And I want us to look at these verses through that lens, and what we're gonna discover is what every couple who is in love does and understands intuitively or has learned somewhere along the way. That love is a verb and you stay in love by making love a verb, but by making love a verb in a very specific way, the way that Jesus made love a verb when he decided to love you and when he decided to love me. These are very challenging verses, but the reward is if a man and a woman, if two people in a relationship will embrace these ideas, and I mean embrace them as much as they can be embraced and take them to the extreme that they can be taken to, what you'll discover is that in a relationship where love needs to be rekindled, it can be rekindled. And in a relationship that's strong, it will get even stronger. And in a relationship that's weak, something new and exciting can take place. So let's look at these verses together. This is challenging, but it's actually kind of a lot of fun as all of us want to be and stay in love. Philippians chapter two, verse three, and he comes right out of the chute with a really, really, really strong exhortation. He says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing in your relationship out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And the little Greek words there actually mean don't compete with each other. Don't be so competitive. Take the competition out of the relationship. Don't keep trying to one up. Don't keep correcting them because they tell the story wrong. Don't keep trying to outdo them. Don't keep trying to show off. Don't keep trying to show your neighbors how much smarter you are than your husband or your wife. He says, I want you to take the competition out of the relationship. Do nothing out of vain conceit that I'm better than you are. Take all of that out and then listen to the contrast. Rather, in humility of mind or in humility, depending on your translation, and then here, is one of the most exciting yet difficult yet challenging relational principles in the Bible. Value others above yourself or consider, maybe in your text it says, consider others more important than yourself. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in an environment? Have you ever been to an event? Have you ever been anywhere where you were around somebody who was actually more important than you were? Now, if the answer is no, you have a, an ego situation that I, I can't even begin to address, okay? The answer is yes, you have been somewhere where there was somebody more important than you. That wasn't a trick question. If you've ever been to a wedding and you weren't the bride, you've been somewhere where there was somebody more important than you. In fact, when you got to the sanctuary, the chapel, and you walked in, did you notice how no one stood? But when she walked in, everybody stood because in that moment, you were not the most important person in the room, okay? If you've ever had your boss over for dinner, okay? And you sat down with your kids and said, kids, if you don't want this to be the last night of your life, here's how you've gotta behave because the boss is coming over, right? Because you are gonna have somebody important in your home and you even said something to your husband or your wife, let's don't bring this up and don't mention this and don't talk, you know, because why? Because here's the thing, here's what we all know. When you are around someone who is more important than you, the goal isn't to be right. The goal is to be respectful, right? When you're around someone who's more important than you, you always defer to them. You always laugh at their jokes. You don't correct their stories. You don't put yourself first. When you're around someone who's more important than you, you always defer to them. If you've ever been around a singer or an actor, or you got on an airplane and there was somebody famous, you know, there was a sense of, you kind of did that. You went like, oh, 
There was a sense of awe. Look who's here, awe. In fact, maybe for some of you, it was the first time you met my dad. You know, growing up with a famous dad, it's so funny, because of course, to me, he's just dad, but to all everybody else, it's, <gasps> you know, it's like they'd almost pass out, you know? And, and you know, they'd be just standing there and I'd take their arm and say, shake his hand, it's okay, you know? And I was just kidding. Because when you're around somebody who you think is important or more important to you, there's a sense of awe. Now imagine this, imagine a relationship between you and someone else, between a husband and a wife, between you and your fiance, where there was a sense of, you know what? We're not gonna lose the awe. I am gonna choose to treat you as if you are actually more important than me. Now, the pushback is, well, Andy, but, but she's not more important, but Andy, but he's not more important. That's, that's not even the issue. Paul says, I, and we're gonna get to the why in just a minute. I want you to act as if they are more important than you. Now, you know what? As much as that seems, you know, kind of difficult, as much as you may wanna push back, here's what I know about you. You love to be treated like you're the most important person in the room, don't you? I mean, you don't hate that a bit, right? You've never complained. They keep treating me like I'm so important. I hate going over there and they're always giving me stuff and giving me the best seat. I hate it. I just, I don't wanna go over there. You know what? We are drawn, our hearts, listen, our hearts are automatically drawn to environments of acceptance and our lives and our bodies and our hearts, we are drawn to environments and to relationships where we're treated like we're somebody special. Paul says, you know what? That's how I want you to treat each other. Not because they are more important. I want you to treat them as if they are more important. I don't want you to lose that sense of awe. Remember when you first fell in love? Wasn't there a sense of awe? I just gotta meet him. I just hope he calls me back. You know, I just gotta call her up. I just gotta meet her. I just, oh, just that sense of awe. That, that's what that is. I'm considering you more important than myself and I'm gonna defer to you. My goal in this relationship is not to be right. My goal in this relationship is to be so respectful that you will always lean and want to lean in my direction. Now, you know what? If we were to stop right there and you were to examine your love relationship through that single lens, that could be life-changing. And you know what else I know that some of you know? When you begin to spend time with people who are still passionately in love with each other, you will discover that that's how they treat one another. That there's no disrespectful talk in public, there's, they're, they're not correcting each other. They're not trying to one-up each other. They're not trying to show other people how much smarter. There's none of that. There's just a sense of, oh, they still are in love. That's what in love people do. That's how they make love a verb. Paul doesn't stop there though. He, he keeps going as if that wasn't enough. Verse four, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others not looking to your own interest, but to the interest of others, that in love people have made it a habit of expressing interest in things they're not really interested in. Now, this is really hard for me, and let me explain why. I don't know if I explained this very well. This is hard for me because I'm interested in the things that interest me. And I'm not interested in the things that don't interest me. Do you find that to be true of you as well? that I'm naturally interested in certain things and I'm interested in them. And the things that aren't interesting to me, I'm not interested in them. And so I don't express interest in them. 
And Paul says, you wanna stay in love, you wanna do this, you wanna love the way Jesus loved. He says, you have to make a decision to express interest in things you're not interested in. Now, we have a really current event illustration of this in our marriage. Sandra and I have been married 20 years. And um, for several years, she has hinted about that she'd like to have a garden. And I've acted like I haven't heard her. <laughs> Cause I don't wanna have a garden. Now, here's why I don't wanna have a garden. It's not interesting to me. You can't plug anything in, okay? There are no electronics involved. I don't wanna go, I, plus I don't eat things that are grown in gardens. I, I found that coffee grows on trees and we don't have the right climate to grow coffee beans. So why would I want a garden, okay? I just have no interest in that at all. So through the years, we've had this conversation. So a few months ago, as we headed into springtime, she said, you know, I really wanna have a garden. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's have a garden. And see, the, one of the reasons I don't wanna have a garden is it might require something of me, heaven forbid. I might have to do something. I might have to do something I don't wanna do on a Saturday. So I don't wanna have a garden, right? Just not interested, interested in that. So now we have a garden. And in fact, in our marriage, it's so funny because we talk about the garden in these terms because Sandra knows I'm not interested. So every day since we've had the garden, she has said to me with a smile on her face, have you gone out to check the garden? knowing that I don't wanna ever go out and check the garden. I don't, the only reason I care is because she cares. But in our marriage, here's what I want you to see. In our marriage, the garden is an opportunity. The garden is an opportunity for me to unconditionally love my wife. And I know that if I leverage the garden the way it needs to be leveraged, we will stay in love because it's my opportunity to express some interest in something that I'm not interested in at all. In fact, I really didn't wanna have one. And she knows that. Now, you know what? In every relationship that's, if you're listening to this message and you're in a relationship, a love relationship, there are gardens in that relationship. There are things you have no interest in that you express no interest in. There are things that he or she's interested in that you know they're very interested in that hold no fascination to you. And the challenge for you, if you're gonna stay in love is this, are you willing to take this verse to heart and to learn how to intentionally express interest in things you're not interested in? Now, in a compromised marriage, in a marriage where people just stay together, but they fall out of love, everybody has their own deal, has their own hobbies, has their own interests, and they just, they never intersect. But when you, you, you check it out, you know this is true. When you meet people who've been married for a bunch of years and they are still passionately in love, you will find that line does not exist in the same way. They have learned to express interest. They've learned to cross over. And what many people discover is when they cross over and begin to express interest in things they weren't previously interested in, guess what they get interested in? Those very things. So one of these days I'll be out there in my rubber boots planting things. I don't know, I mean, maybe that's gonna happen. Years ago, I was, I was talking to a lady and I just met her and I was just trying to have casual conversation. I said, I'll never forget this. I said, what does your husband do? And this was her answer. She says, it has something to do with wires. I said, what? She said, it has something to do with wires. I asked her twice because I thought, that was her description of her husband's job. Not a company, not a name, not a, it has something to do with wires. There's a woman who has never understood this principle. Her, I mean, as important as a man's work is to him, she has summed it up as it's something to do with wires that has nothing to do with me. That's not my thing, that's what he does. Paul says, you wanna stay in love? You wanna love like Jesus loves? 
that at somewhere, at some point, you have to express interest and take interest in things that aren't interesting to you, not because they're interesting to you, but because you're interested in the one who's interested in them. That's what people who stay in love do. Now, at this point in the passage, the temptation is to push back and to say, wait, 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 okay. I like to come up now and tell my sad story because I have a sad story. And you get up here and tell us about your terrible ex-husband and all the things he did. And we'd listen to your sad story and go, well, you're right. You, never, you don't have to do any of this. You're, you're excused. You can get a pass and sit right over there. And you come up here and talk about this awful guy that you're engaged to and all he does is this and that. And, he doesn't, and we would just listen and say, well, you know what? You're right. You get a pass. You sit over here in the pass section of people who don't have to do any of this because, because you have a sad story. And you know what? I'm a pastor. Our culture is full of sad stories. You don't have to tell me that. In fact, I think I've heard every variation on every theme. You tell me you're sad when I can trump you with a sadder one. It's just because, because of the culture and the nature of the world that we live in, it's very, very difficult. That's why you've begun to ask possibly, is it possible for two people to fall in love and stay in love throughout a lifetime? And so Paul may be sensing that we're beginning to make excuses and beginning to push back a little bit. Now he brings in the part of Jesus talk where Jesus said, I want you to love the way that I love, not simply the way you've seen love illustrated. Verse five, he says this, in your relationships with one another, and again, he's talking about everybody. We're just looking at this little subset of relationships. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had. Or maybe in your text, it says, have this attitude or have the mind of Jesus. It's, it's translated different ways. He's saying, now, here's what he's saying. When you think about your love relationships, I want you to approach them the way that Jesus approached relationships. It's not enough to look around and model after mom and dad, although they may have been great models. He says, but I want you to make sure you're taking your cues from Jesus. Then he goes on, verse six, who, being in the talking about Jesus, who being in very nature God, which means Jesus was God, which means when Jesus went to the wedding, he was still the most important person in the room because he's God. You know, if Jesus had come to, come to your house for dinner and you had your boss over, he's still the most important person in the room. Everywhere Jesus went, he was really the most important person in the room. People didn't treat him like he was more important in order to you know, treat him like he was more important. He really was the most important person in the room. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now check this out. And men, we really need to pause and look at this verse. Here's what he says. He says, even though Jesus really was always the most important person in the room, he's God. He never ever leveraged that to his own advantage. That's unbelievable. That means he never went to a restaurant, walked over to the best table that already had people sitting at it and said, me and my guys, we want this table. I'm Jesus. J-E-S-U-S, I'm Jesus, we want this table. I'm God, okay? We want this, he never did that, okay? He never went anywhere and said, you know what? I deserve a little respect. I deserve a little more attention. I deserve to be at the front of the line. Let's go to Six Flags and get in front of all the people in line. He never, Disney, wherever you guys wanna go, because I'm Jesus, okay? I just show up and say, I'm Jesus. And then they let us in the front of the line. He never, ever leveraged who he was to his own advantage, but there is something in me and there's something in you that has a hard time with that. Because somewhere in your world, you're a pretty important person. 
Maybe it's at work, maybe it's at home, maybe you've had to sort of create or manufacture an environment where you kind of get all bowed up and you get all powered up and the Bible says you're supposed to submit. I don't know where it is, but I know it's in there somewhere. And you know, and all of a sudden, you know, we start leveraging our power for our benefit and for our sake. And Paul says, when it comes to love relationships, I want you to think like Jesus, even though he really had it going on even though he was the man, even though he was the son of God, God incarnate, even though he was actually always the most important person in the room, he never once leveraged that for his own benefit. He always leveraged it for the benefit of others. That's what people who stay in love do. That's what people who fall in love and stay in love do. They figure out how to take all of that that makes them great and all of that that makes them special and all their gifts and all their talents and all the things that they could flaunt and leverage them, not only for the sake of others, but specifically for the sake of that person that they wanna spend the rest of their life being in love with. Rather, contrast verse seven, instead of using it to his own advantage, I love this phrase. He made himself nothing. Or in your text, it might say he emptied himself. He emptied himself. I love that phrase, he emptied himself because it's in contrast with a phrase we use all the time in our culture. When we say somebody is full of themselves, he's full of himself, she's full of herself. That is, they think more of themselves than we think of them. It is easy to get full of yourself. In a relationship, it means that the relationship will eventually self-destruct. Jesus came along who could have been full of himself, who could have been all about Jesus all the time. And the Bible says he made love a verb. He made a decision to empty himself. And Paul says, are you paying attention? because this is the mindset I want you to maintain. This is how I want you to approach all relationships. This is how I want you to approach, especially the marriage relationship, the romance relationship, the in love relationship. You figure out how in this relationship do I empty myself of me? And again, when you run into people who are still in love, you do not run into people who are full of themselves. You meet people that somehow within the context of that relationship have learned how to empty themselves. Verse 70 tells us how, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Verse eight, and being found in appearance as a human being. Now we're getting into new stuff. This is so powerful. In fact, I think this next verse represents the most powerful relational dynamic that there is. I think this, re this reflects the most powerful relational principle that there is. And being found in human appearance as a human being, he humbled himself, which means, listen to this, he made the decision, he made the decision to place himself under someone else not equal, not 50-50, not you do your part, I'll do my part. Jesus, son of God, most important person in the room, decided, made a decision, it's making love a verb, made a decision to humble himself, which means submit himself, which means place himself under. Now listen, the most powerful relational dynamic there is, the most powerful relational principle, the thing that makes more difference than anything else is this idea of mutual submission, where both parties decide to submit to the other. 
And Paul says, this is the attitude I want you to maintain in your relationships, specifically in your marriage relationships. Now, as you know, later on, the apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, he writes specifically to husbands and wives. And he, he, he writes this, and this is you know most husbands' favorite verse. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. And every man I know that's a Christian who's been a Christian for more than three years knows that verse by memory. I've sat and talked to men, I'm telling you, with their wives sitting right there or their fiance sitting right there in premarital counseling. And the guy says, but isn't the wife supposed to submit to the husband? And I'm thinking to myself, the first word in that phrase is wives, which means it's addressed to wives, which means you shouldn't even read that verse because <laughs> it's written to wives. There's another one that says husbands. No husband on the planet knows the next verse. I've never had a husband quote the next verse to me ever in the history of all you know, my experience as a pastor. And the other one says this, it says, husbands, you're to love your wives like Christ loved the church, like he died for the church. You're to give your life for your wife. The idea of submitting to a husband and a husband giving his life for his wife, it's the same thing. In fact, the verse before all those verses that are so, you know, get people all been out of shape, the verse before all that, that sets the whole thing up, here's what it says. Here's a verse no one knows. Submit to one another. Listen, listen. Mutual submission is a game changer in a relationship, I'm telling you. Isn't the husband the head of the home? Yeah, he's the head of the home, just like Christ, the head of the church, has nothing to do with powering up and being in charge and ordering people around. How many times do you find Jesus getting all the guys in line and ordering them around? Never. How many times do you find him serving? Always. Listen, mutual submission works like this. You're the most important person in the room, Sandra. Sandra goes, no, Andy, you're the most important person. I'm going, no, 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 you're the most important person in the room. That's, that's why I'm gonna go out in, in the garden, you know? <laughs> And she's like, no, Andy, if you don't wanna have a garden, I don't wanna have a garden. No, I want you to have a garden because you wanna have a garden. I'm going, yeah, but I, look, it's not because I wanna have a garden, but honey, if that's important to you, it's important to me, I want you to have a garden. Well, Andy, if you think it's gonna, see, that's how we argue in our home, not all, all, all the time, but that's how you're supposed to argue. That is mutual submission. And you know what, whether you believe the Bible or not, whether you take any of this seriously or not, you go find a couple who are still passionately in love. And when you're around them, you sense there's nobody in this relationship that thinks they have to be the boss. There's nobody in this relationship that's getting all powered up. There's a man who takes responsibility, but that's different than bossing everybody around and thinking I have to be the dictator of the family. That's a different thing. Taking responsibility. I mean, who's responsible for the church? Jesus is responsible for the church. But who died for the church? Jesus. Who paid the ultimate sacrifice? Jesus. But who takes responsibility? Jesus has nothing to do with powering up and telling everybody what to do. It has everything to do with serving. And so Paul says, I want you to have the same attitude in your relationships that Jesus had. And he volitionally chose to submit himself. And who did he submit himself to? This is even more amazing. He submitted himself to you. Jesus decided your deal was more important than his deal. Jesus decided that your need for forgiveness was more important than his need for glory. He decided that your need for forgiveness was more important than his need to get what he deserved. Jesus decided to embrace your interest at the expense of his own. And he says, now, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Let's start at home. 
Let's start in that engagement. Let's start in that relationship. Let's start in this marriage that's about to fall apart. Let's start in this marriage where it's already strong, but could be stronger. Let's start in this brand new family that you're putting together. Then he finishes up. Verse eight, let me read the whole verse to you. And being found in appearance as a man, a human being, he humbled himself by... Do you know how you humble yourself in your marriage? You humble yourself by coming home on time. You humble yourself by taking care of yourself physically. You humble yourself by paying attention when your husband or wife is talking. I mean, those are pretty simple things. Listen to how Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So when you and I wanna raise our hand and say, it's too hard, this mutual submission thing's too hard. You're, you're asking too much. I mean, Jesus, how did, how did you apply it? He'd say, well, I, I died on a cross in an effort to make your deal more important than mine. Andy, I submitted myself to you. Would you please do that for your wife? Sandra, I submitted myself at Calvary for your sin. Would you please now do that? for your husband. Here's the thing I want you to get. You see, Jesus, and I don't know if this is the right terminology, but Jesus had a dilemma. And I don't know if dilemma is the right word. It's the only word I know. Jesus had a dilemma. And here was his dilemma. He could either get what he deserved or he could get what he wanted, but he couldn't get both. What he deserved was glory. What he deserved was every room he walked into, people bowed down and worshiped him. What he deserved was for Pilate to say, you are the king, Caesar's not the king. What he deserved was honor and glory and all the things that were ascribed to him and had been ascribed to him throughout scripture. What Jesus deserved was glory and honor and respect. What he wanted was a relationship with you. And what he wanted was a relationship with me. Jesus opted for relationship over glory. Jesus opted for relationship over getting what he's deserved. Jesus knew he couldn't have both. You can't have both either. If you're gonna stay in love, you've gotta opt for relationship over getting what you always deserve. Well, I'm the husband. Well, that's interesting. But do you want a relationship with your wife? Well, you know, when, my, when I was growing up, that, that, that's interesting. But do you want a relationship with your husband? You can't demand what you deserve and get what you want if you want to fall and stay in love. And when you scratch below the surface of relationships where people are still passionately in love, what you find is that nobody's demanding their way. Nobody's demanding their rights. Nobody's saying I should get what I deserve. What you're finding is people have opted for the relationship over the honor they think in their hearts and their minds they deserve because they have emptied themselves like our savior emptied himself. A few weeks ago, we were finishing up baseball season for one of my sons and um, Sandra and I were walking. We've been to hundreds of baseball games with both of my boys and we're walking back to the car and we overheard a conversation and neither of us, Sandra or I knew that either of us was listening to this conversation, but it was kind of hard to miss. There was a lady, one of the moms, and she was headed to the car and she was sending her husband back to the um, baseball field to get the folding chairs. Um, so the conversation started with him standing a few feet from each other. But as he started back to the, to the ball field to get the chairs, she continued to instruct him. And the further away he got, the louder she had to talk. And the conversation went something like this. 
Don't forget to get the chairs, the two folding chairs. There's two, don't forget to get the towing chair. This is getting louder and louder. And don't forget the seat, don't forget the covers. Remember last time you forgot one of the covers. Don't bring the chairs home without both of the covers on them. So Sandra and I walked to the car and we get in the car and we got in and she said, I can't imagine ever talking to you like that. And I said, if you did, I would travel more. Now, here's the interesting thing about that conversation between the husband and the wife. Listen, she was right. He needed to get the chairs. She was right. He needed not to forget the covers. I bet he really forgot them last time. I bet she told him before they even got to the game, make sure you get the chairs. Apparently the reason they were 50 yards away from the ball field without the chairs is because he forgot to get the chairs. My point is she was exactly, exactly, exactly right in everything she said. And in being right, I saw her before my very eyes so disrespect her husband and erode her relationship with him that even though she was right, she was slowly losing what she valued most being in love with her husband because you cannot have it both ways. And listen, you can win arguments and you can make points and you can alienate the person that you love the most. And anytime anybody ever stops you or confronts you, you can be right every single time and argue your case and all of us would say, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, but you're wrong. You're right, you're right, you're right, you're right with the facts. You're right, you're right, you're right, you're right with what you said. But in the way you said it and what you said, you have begun to undermine this relationship that you think is so valuable because you're trying to get what you deserve and you've overlooked the value of the relationship. And you've so disrespected your spouse, you've, so, you've shown so much disrespect for the person that you say you're in love with, that eventually, even though you're right, you win the argument and you always power up and everybody says you're right and cries at the end or however it goes or pouts and then, you know, however it goes in your, your, your world. The goal when you're around somebody who's more important than you is not to be right. It's to be respectful. It's not to explain things so that everyone agrees with you, it's to defer. And if ever we needed a model, we have the model in our savior who went to the cross and died for your sin and put your deal ahead of his own, refused to take what he had coming because he required and desired a relationship with you more than he even desired his own glory. And Jesus says, now I want you to make love a verb. I want you to love one another. I want you to love your fiance, your spouse, that person you're in a relationship with. And I want you to love them the way that I loved you which means the relationship comes before you getting everything you want and everything you deserve. It means that you learn to embrace their interest at the expense of your own. It means that you submit and they submit and you submit and they submit and there's not a boss and there's not somebody who's in control and there's not somebody who's running the show. There are two people who are so committed to serving one another that decisions get made and things get done and things move forward and the kids get raised, but it's in an environment of mutual submission, which is the most powerful and the most attractive type of relationship. Now, let me ask you something. What, what would that look like in your world? 
And I don't mean you've been doing this the whole service and you're wondering what she's gonna do when you get home and what he's gonna do. And you're going, I wish my husband was here and my boyfriend, I wish he'd come and I'm gonna get four copies of the CD and put one in the bedroom and put one in the kitchen. I'll put one in his mama's house. I'm gonna, you know, we're gonna, it's gonna get there, you know. I'm talking about for you. What would it look like? What does it mean in your world to embrace the interest of the person you're in love with? What does it mean to submit to them? What does it mean to love them like Jesus loved you? That's what we've been called to do. Here's what, you know what I think? I think that in our culture, the way culture's gone, I think the greatest evangelism, I think the greatest evangelism that we'll ever do is through these kinds of relationships. Because everybody on your street, everybody in your office, everybody in your apartment complex, everybody you bump into, everybody you go eyeball to eyeball with this week wants to think that they can fall in love and stay in love with someone forever. Everybody desires that. As Christians, we've been instructed how to do it. There probably is no greater evangelism in our culture than this kind of relationship. It goes beyond you simply being happy and it goes beyond me simply living happily ever after with my wife. It goes way beyond that. It goes toward demonstrating to our culture what Jesus did at Calvary when he put us first, when he submitted to us, when he was obedient as Paul says, to the point of death, even death on a cross. My heart's desire for you, as I know it is for yourself, is that you fall in love, but not just fall there, stay there. And that'll happen if you decide to make love a verb. And that'll happen when you decide to love and to learn to love like Jesus loved you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's so much easier to, to talk about than to do. But I pray that in your wisdom and your grace and your mercy that you give each of us right now just a snapshot of what would, we have, what would we have to do different? What would it mean? What would we have to say? What would we have to quit saying? What new habit do we need to develop? What do we need to apologize for? Father, give each of us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've just heard and the courage to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.